0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 69. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. You're listening to Session 69, and it is brought to you by our friends over at Gearslutz.com. Focal Monitors, Universal Audio and Audio Technica. Welcome, welcome. Got another good show. This time we're going to do something a little different. We're actually going to interview somebody who doesn't live in the United States. I know it's it's been a long time coming. Uh, I think the only exception to that is I interv- not interviewed, but I had Jules from Gearsluts on at one point as kind of a just a check in, but not really an official interview. So really, I'm not going to count Jules's discussion with us as a full-on, um, out-of-U.S. interview. But this one I am. I'm talking about Magnus Lindbergh of uh, Stockholm, Sweden, uh, mixing and mastering engineer, who does the occasional recording. He works out of Redmount Studios in Stockholm, and yeah, we're gonna have him come up and chat with us a bit. He's also a member of, uh, the Swedish band Cult of Luna. Maybe you've heard of them. He works with a pretty, pretty broad international clientele, and I thought it'd be great to have a chat with him. We, uh, we're, uh, chatting over Facebook and uh, I invited him to come on the show. So Magnus Lindbergh coming up shortly. So I just got back from Florida. I was there uh, with doing some family stuff uh, this past week and got back recently. And I found myself over uh, in Venice, Florida for part of a day. And I was meeting some people there for dinner in kind of a downtown type of area, the many tourist shops and restaurants and lots of people wandering around. And I thought, well, uh, while I'm waiting for these people to show up for dinner, I'm just going to go and sit at this little table that was kind of like off the main thoroughfare, you know, just kind of down, down like a hallway part of a shopping center. And in this hallway were a couple other uh, businesses, not, not very many, but there was like, there was a barber shop and uh, I think a furniture place. And one place that was on the right caught my attention and it was it was kind of the equivalent of seeing um i don't know uh, i guess the best way to describe it was it was like seeing an elephant in the middle of uh you know a downtown area it was that odd to me it was a recording studio in a shopping center and it wasn't just a recording studio alone the the, the business and and if the owners are listening great uh venice media group is what it is and uh the sign said uh photographer video and Island Recording Studio. And it was this um, place where I guess they do all kinds of video, uh, video, uh, you know, like changing VHS tapes to DVD and large format printing and and framing and stuff like that. But they also happen to have a recording studio. And, you know, they're listing the services on the window, you know, how people have uh, their you know, not only their, you know, their business hours and their address, and sometimes their services listed on a window, you know, printed on the window. Uh, there it was, lo and behold, it said Audio Recording Studio, Pro Tools multi-track Studio for singers, songwriters, and bands. Uh, they do voiceovers and audio announcements and on-hold music and recording. And, you know, what they did was not that strange. I guess what it was is seeing it in that environment, in this, like, in the middle of, all this, I don't know, shopping, restaurants, and all that. It just seemed odd, and it was, you know, you could walk in and, you know, book book time. And I didn't want to go in. I was, I I had people with me, and I didn't want to, you know, break the momentum of of what we were in the middle of. So I thought, yeah, that wouldn't be very good to interrupt everybody to go on a little adventure. But very interesting. So if you are ever in Venice, Florida check out Venice media group. Very interesting. Yeah. One Oh one West Venice Avenue, Suite 10. Super cool. It was, it was odd to see. And I, I wish I had got a chance to look at it. And uh, if the owners are listening and, and you hear this great, send us some photos of the studio. It'd be interesting to see. It was just kind of odd to see that kind of bit, you know, our bit, one of our types of businesses out in the open like that. Usually, you know, they're tucked studios are tucked away in like, you know, uh, Different, you know, industrial areas, or sometimes in hipster areas, and you know, it doesn't exactly say, you know, hey, there's a recording studio in here, but there it was. Yeah, strange. So that's it. Let's uh, let's get on with it, man. Let's uh, get on over to uh, Stockholm, Sweden. Let's talk with Magnus Lindbergh here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to to be here and to uh, to talk to me here. No. Your, your studio is in Stockholm. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you rent the building or do you own the building?
1: We, as uh, so in me and two other guys, rent it. It's basically a, a big garage, which we built a studio in. So it's probably around maybe 1,800 square feet. Wow. But we share it. So it's like three control rooms, one each, small recording room, like overdubs. And uh, and we also rent out a smaller room, fourth Control room and the kitchen toilet all that kind of stuff you know
0: that's nice so you you have three people involved each with their own control room yeah and a, a common a common recording room or live room yeah that's i like that mm-hmm. which so everybody has their own space yeah
1: exactly we have sort of our own where we always are and then we it's actually mostly me and this other guy nicholas who does any recording and mostly he does it so we got sort of wires to the recording room uh, from our spaces. Yeah.
0: And what's your, what's your client base like? What, what kind of folks do you record?
1: Well, I don't personally record that much, maybe one or two albums a year. Okay. Uh, I mostly do mixing and also mastering. For mixing, it's pretty much a lot of international stuff all mm-hmm. over Europe, uh, even the States sometimes. And for mastering, it's a little more Swedish, but also international.
0: Interesting. So tell me about how do people find you for mixing? And and is it is it purely uh, word of mouth or is it based on, you know, working the Internet? Word of mouth
1: only, I'd say. I've never done any sort of ads or push push my job to anyone else. Or, you know, it's all been, they've heard stuff I like, I guess, or got recommended mm-hmm. by someone. And that's all that.
0: That's nice when you can just have that organic... Uh, business growth, as opposed to spending all your time on, mm-hmm. you know, promoting promoting yourself on the web. That's such a pain in the ass.
1: Yeah, and I also think that in in the sort of the type of clients that I have, it's you don't really Google, you know, mixing, and then you take the first best result in the Google page. You sort of <laughs> have some sort of connection to who you're hiring, basically. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's all. Word of mouth.
0: So you said your mixing clients are more international, and your mastering clients are are more local.
1: Yeah, but still international, also.
0: Interesting. I wonder why that is.
1: Yeah, I'm doing a lot of pop also in Sweden. Like I don't usually do like poppy stuff for mixing or recording, so it's maybe local pop stuff also coming more and more here in Stockholm.
0: Uh, I've seen some pictures on the the Facebook page and your studio site of the studio that you have there. It's very nice. Thanks. Curious, the desk you have, I love the wood. Mm -hmm. Where'd you get that?
1: I found it on a German site called Wave Nature, that's a company. I was searching around for sort of working desks and I also looked into the sort of, uh, I don't know, Sterling, the American stuff. There's a few others also. Mm-hmm. This was really price worthy, a little bit cheaper, and I also like the sort of style of it. And I like the wood, as you do.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the wood grain on there caught my attention. Yeah. I thought, ooh, I like, I like that. I've never seen one like, that looks so good like that, mm-hmm. so I'll have to check that out. And on the, I think it's on the Facebook page that you post some uh, construction pictures yep. that I saw. What was the construction time uh, <clears throat> of the studio? And and some of the costs, you know, what what was your costs involved? How did you figure that out?
1: We had a we had a building company, studio building company, doing all the sort of uh, basic foundation building, you know, dry walls and ventilation, electricity, and that started around early December fourteen, and then they were done. They left here in I'd say uh, early February. So about what is it two months hmm. from them that then we had a lot of work to do you know with touching the place up and doing all the acoustic uh building laying floors all
0: that kind of stuff and it was a studio building company mm-hmm. is that common in stockholm or in sweden in general
1: uh there's a couple that i know i don't think they only build studios for people like us but also like uh maybe acoustic treatments or tv studios acoustic treatments mm-hmm. in hospitals or whatever you know everything acoustic and construction business-wise interesting huh but they
0: what kind of money did you end up having to spend uh depends on how
1: you count i guess um the sort of basic structures were maybe uh i think maybe uh a hundred thousand dollars i'm talking dollars oh wow 80, 100,000 split to three, you know, we're three people. Oh, okay. But then uh, everyone put in their own sort of effort and whatever money they thought was viable for them inside the room that you have yourself. Yeah. Also, all the acoustics and floors and, you know, everything.
0: I assume that you have a long term, long term uh, lease, long term rental. We have a
1: five year lease right now. So. And it's been one year now, so four more to go. And then we'll see what happens. We don't, we don't know uh, if we'll, you know, try to extend it or just sell it or tear it down. I don't know. <laughs> oh man, We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> That's a chance that, that you had to take. Yeah. But five years felt like, you know, decent and reasonable time to enough to uh, feel secure and not not long enough to sort of feel sort of tied up for the rest of your life.
0: Is there any bleed between the different control rooms or is it fairly isolated? It's
1: quite good isolated. Uh, I mean, we didn't do, you know, these really super expensive floating floors in the control rooms because that would have been, you know, double the cost of the whole place. None of us really blasts speakers when, when working. I rarely hear anything from, you know, my next door control room. Uh, so it's fine, yeah. Uh,
0: that's but great. the recording room is totally floating. I I really like how you've done that. Just uh, it's a it's like a co op studio, but mm-hmm. it's got some shared elements, and everybody has their own personal space. Yeah,
1: I think it's that's the sort of whole uh, whole reason why this worked financially. Being able to sort of split the costs and share common areas, you know, all that kind of stuff.
0: And I guess you, you obviously chose your studio partners very carefully.
1: Yeah, we we've known each other for a while and some more than others, so we, we sort of trusted each other
0: absolutely and uh it's
1: been working out great
0: so far. <laughs> so far. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a good year, I take it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We enjoyed. When you mix for your clients, how is it structured? Do you mix per song or do you mix at a at a rate per hour or how do you how do you financially plan it with your clients? Per
1: song, usually. And depending on uh, how many songs it is, My, I mean, I'm flexible, as you have to be, I think. But it's usually a per song basis. And then that can take, you know, different amounts of time. But I, I always think that sort of gives me more freedom spending more time with a song mm-hmm. without, you know, ruining the client. Or, or it also, if it's a really smooth project, and it's even better paid, you know? So I think it's fair to to charge per song.
0: Yeah, I like that. it It allows me to get the song to where I like it mm-hmm. and put the time in without stressing out that the client's going to be freaked out about the time I spend. Exactly. You can spend you know, two more hours. You know, it's the same price for them. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's predictable. They they know what they're going to pay. Yep. Do you ever struggle with the with the nature of international work? Do you struggle with language barriers at all? No,
1: not really. I guess everyone is using English. I don't know any other languages, but but Swedish and English. So for me, I mean, it happens that you sort of have clients in certain countries that maybe aren't that good at writing in English, you know. Mm-hmm. But since it's written, you can always sort of decipher it quite easily by some back and forth emails. So. Mm-hmm. Do you spend any time on Skype
0: with people? It's usually email,
1: yeah. Okay. Usually email. Or if they come here, you know, it's face-to-face, obviously.
0: Do you prefer people being in the room with you when you mix, or do you like to mix unattended? I like to mix parts, part-time
1: unattended, so I can, like, focus and, you know, be in the bubble. (laughs) (laughs) I like that, yeah. And, uh, I mean, feedbacking and stuff uh, and finishing a project, it's so much faster if people are present and that goes with mastering as well saying a word is faster than writing it <laughs> sending an email yeah it's it's definitely i like both
0: yeah uh, yeah i always get stressed out when i have clients right there observing the early stages of mixing where you're kind of exploring and EQing and tearing things apart mm-hmm. and trying out ideas cuz they they hear things and they don't understand the context of you know why why is he soloing my vocal or why is he yeah. you know just yeah. playing the kick drum if they don't understand the process i always find it's it's a it's a pain in the ass cuz mm-hmm. they stop you and go what are you, what are you doing right now yeah and then it just takes
1: much longer exactly that sounds weird you know yeah, but you know, it's gonna sound good soon. You know, right? <laughs> like it's 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 gonna sound
0: good. You uh, just trust me. Yeah, yeah, no, that that part of the job,
1: I I tend to sort of like to to be alone, and then I I love to have clients in for the big picture and sort of the you know, when I have something rolling in in the mix.
0: Tell me a little bit about the music scene in Stockholm, the music scene slash the recording scene. What's, what's the world of recording like there? Is there a lot of studios and what's, what are the costs in, uh, involved for an artist to go to a studio in Stockholm?
1: Well, as everywhere else, I think the the big studios have been sort of gradually disappearing or getting less at least. Um, but there's really a lot of, uh, really small studios like i mean in this part of of the town i I can name like five within five blocks easily (laughs) but it's usually quite small and sort of quite often also kind of in a you know cellar feeling you know uh tucked away a little bit sort of (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it's quite expensive with uh real estate here um but cost i don't know uh Everything from, you know, $800 a day to 200, there's a big one over a few hundred meters from here called Atlantis. And that's, that's quite expensive if you want to neve console and all that, but there's everything from that to the simplest studio you can imagine.
0: I'm curious, you know, I've spent so much of my time interviewing US based engineers. So I'm I'm not really clear, especially, you know, with uh, regards to Stockholm or or Sweden in general, like how the world of recording compares in terms of, is there a trend towards the same, the same tools such as Pro Tools or, or is it more or people geared more towards other DAWs or analog tape? Yeah, it's, I'd say it's, it's quite
1: similar. As for, dos uh i think uh right here in stockholm i think uh especially among producers logic is quite common pro tools yes especially in s- recording studios i personally don't use any of those two i use reaper uh, which i love but I, I and also as for hardware stuff it's it's pretty much the same maybe a bit more of the european brands because you know it's a little bit cheaper when you don't have the import uh, custom stuff yeah but you know I have I have crane song stuff I have you know what else to have that's American crane song two crane song pieces <laughs> manly is common you know that kind of stuff
0: yeah what kind of uh, t- uh, taxes do you have to pay on on some of that American stuff like crane song and manly
1: I'm not sure uh, but you, you always see when you when you compare prices uh, on For example, I don't know if you know, this is a big German warehouse called Tumann. You always see, and if you compare that with like Vintage King, you see that the American stuff is more expensive here than in the US and vice versa. I don't know how much it is, like in percent, uh, but
0: yeah, it's... It's It's always more significant
1: or... Maybe not huge, but you know, enough if you're on a sort of budget, it can be
0: an issue. It definitely affects your decision making. Yeah, it can, yeah, absolutely. As far as your, uh, your mixing and your mastering business, uh, you mix on a per song basis, mm-hmm. or you mix one rate per song. Um, how is your mastering? Is it s- similar?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's a per song basis, and I sort of the more songs, the cheaper per song. I, I guess I could charge hourly in mastering. That would sort of work better than in mixing. But still, like, sometimes you want to spend a few more hours on something and you really sort of dig or, you know, just difficult project, whatever. And I always like to revisit things the next day. Exactly. I do that all the time. I let it rest, you know, um, take pictures of the gear if I need to do anything else in between. And then I'll come back in the morning. I always find that I, I hear stuff a little better, obviously, when you're fresh. In the morning, yeah, some more
0: high end, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always find when I come back the next day, I always listen to it and go, "Wow, that's so dull sounding." Yeah, that's, and then, yeah, the, you know, the next day I'm I'm always like putting the top end back, mm. or being thankful for the fact that I didn't send the client that the stuff right then and there. And yeah,
1: especially if I'm working late, like it's <clears throat> if it's the last thing I do on a day, uh, I I prefer to let it rest until the morning for sending it.
0: How often are you working, like, in terms of uh, how many days per month? is it? Are you fairly busy, or is there a lot of, you know, downtime? Or I'm quite busy, uh,
1: but I'm trying not to work weekends, for example. Sometimes I do anyway, or go in on a Saturday and do a bounce or something. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm trying to keep it Monday to Friday. I don't find that – I mean, I also try to keep it around eight hours – Uh, per day because i don't find that i do particularly good stuff hour 10 you know on a day i think it just suck hour 10 you know unless you're doing like editing or stuff that doesn't you know isn't critical monitoring or listening wise
0: i'm the same way like i hit i hit a wall at some point and i just have to walk away Mm -hmm. uh why is it that you try to not why, why are you trying to avoid the weekends do you have a family or uh, I have a I have a girlfriend, long term, and that's part of the
1: reason, obviously. But mostly, it's because I I just want to have a life outside the studio as well. <laughs> and, you know, meet friends and yeah, eat food with my that. girlfriend. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah, she's a long term girlfriend because you've set those parameters. Probably, <laughs> yeah, <maybe. laughs> some people just continually obsess and work all the time. That's I like that balance. I think that. I'm of the opinion that you have a more enjoyable time working in audio when you have a life outside yeah. because you crave it when you're outside and you think about yes, it. Yes, for sure. Uh, when you're outside of the studio, do you spend any time educating yourself about audio by reading or watching you know, YouTube videos or any of that? Do you spend any time thinking about audio even though you're out of the yes. studio? <laughs>
1: Well, one thing is listening to working class audio.
0: <laughs> oh, I like that's good. Keep keep doing that. No,
1: but you know, uh, yeah, absolutely. If I'm sort of need to kill an hour, I, I love to sort of read up on, you know, an interview or an article about, or just research researching uh, new gear or you know, I think audio a lot. I just don't want to spend all my time in the studio. You know, yeah, I kind of feel like. You need this sort of uh, fresh air outside. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I do think audio a lot, even when I'm not here. Sure. I'm a um, nerd,
0: you know, uh, like most of us. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you, you, you obsess about it as much as the next person. But um, yeah, it's, do you, ha- you don't have any windows in your studio at all?
1: Not in my control room, no. We do have okay. windows to the street uh, in the sort of lounge kitchen area. So we get daylight in there, which is nice. But no, not not in uh, not in this room.
0: Yeah, as you see I have a window behind mm-hmm. me, and that's That's nice. That helps. Mm-hmm. But uh Yeah. But I'm in I'm in I'm in a not, I'm in a more residential situation. Yeah. So, um what got you into audio? What turned you into this this business? <sighs> uh well, I grew up with the uh, two music uh
1: musicians for parents and my dad is also uh, sort of into tech, you know, audio, audio uh, engineering stuff. He always sort of had this sort of um, rig at home. You know, he started out with a sort of a, you know, these old Atari computers with like the first version of Cubase in mm-hmm. the, like '84. <laughs> oh yeah, he had that. Wow. So I, I was sort of, and then he went from that to. Uh, what is it? Macintosh Classic computers, still Cubase sequencing, basically. So I, I sort of grew up with a sort of some sort of studio environment, and uh, I guess when I grew sort of in the late teens, I realized that I like music and I like technology. So you know, an audio engineer is quite a perfect job for that. Then I sort of went went to school. Um, Oh, first I worked in a demo studio in my hometown up north. Just got to be there for a year, just nerding out, recording all these demo bands. And you kind of got got your early
0: studio experience there. Yeah, that was I was probably nineteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have a mentor, anybody that really guided you and you looked up to?
1: Uh, later, uh, when I got employed by a studio, that's when I got my sort of mentors. Uh, so yeah, after that demo studio thing, I went to school, audio engineering school for two years. And then I... Um, what school did you go to? Uh, it's, it's a technical university in the north of Sweden. And it's the only sort of college or uh, university education in audio engineering. So mm-hmm. the others are like private schools, um, but this is a um, public university. So I went there, and when I was supposed to do my work practice year two, um, I got hooked up with a, a studio in Umeo, also in the north. Uh, and I called Tune Technique recording. And <laughs> it's funny because my my first uh, work practice with um Pellen and Eskil were the producer. They were producing a band uh, from London in Sound City Studios in LA. So my first work practice was. Flying to LA and recording vocals in the tape locking room in Sound City. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, it was pretty cool for a, you know aspiring twenty-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> wow!
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool.
1: So these two guys, Pelle and Eskil, uh, Pelle Henriksson and Eskil Levström, uh, uh, I sort of continued working in their studio, Tune Technique, after that and uh yeah just went from there really um i got a i became a part owner i don't know four years after that and
0: uh part owner of tune technique yeah. huh
1: um yeah and then uh as you know the budget started plumbing and it, it became hard to, to sort of figure that that was a real recording studio like a, a big big recording studio
0: large format console yeah ssl and desk and large uh, library you know
1: amps guitars all that kind of stuff. So
0: it's interesting you use that term, that real recording studio. I've, I've, and I, I, and I'm curious if you agree with this or not. Do you feel that the the studio definition in the 21st century seems to have taken on a little bit different role? I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, you you, you have yeah. a small control room there, but you have, you know, I mean, the things we have at our fingertips these days. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like. I consider your room is small, but I mean you're a legitimate business. You're mm. working with professional clients. I mean, would you consider yourself a real recording studio?
1: No, I wouldn't consider my my studio a real recording studio. I, w- I would consider a real sort of mastering room, professional mixing and mastering room. Okay, um, uh, which it is. It's it's awesome. Uh, but when I say real recording studio, I mean the sort of old style. You know classical uh, type of studios that were much more common only 10 years ago, 15. I mean, I, I saw the downfall of those places <laughs> all over Sweden and the world, I guess. Yeah. When I when I was, you know, getting up and starting to work. Did that discourage you at all? No, not really. Just have to find other ways, I guess, and slim down and mm-hmm. sort of... For example, here, we, can, we can't sort of build a, a you know... A, thousand square feet recording room if we're going to use it one month per year you know (laughs) so you have to sort of think about what you're investing in a lot more these days
0: i think yeah you have to plan your purchases a little more carefully too i guess i'm curious you know um Just uh, culturally and, you know, government-wise between, you know, the differences in a lot of European countries and the United States. In some European countries, you know, they uh, they pay a lot higher taxes, but they also get much more benefit. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm just curious about is how it, you know, the experience of the the engineer in the United States versus, you know, different European countries... Mm -hmm. And how that affects them business-wise, you know, if the government subsidizes, you know, certain things, how that can be beneficial. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Well, I've been involved in projects where um, uh, not only Swedish ones, uh, but European ones, I'd say, that had the record of the recording uh, completely or partly financed by some sort of, you know, government entity of culture, blah, blah, blah. So you can sort of get sort of these benefits for, okay, this is a young aspiring band and we're going to give them some money so they can record a proper album, whatever, you know, stuff like that is, is quite, it happens. It's not common, I'd say for me, okay but yeah, it, it happens for sure. Interesting. So, so that, in that way, you, you sort of directly benefit from it, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I think all the recording engineers in the United States, are, our life would be much different if, that was the case, if if there were U.S.-based artists that were, mm. you know, funded by the government. But
1: but again, the, uh, very few projects I do are, you know, any, in any way funded by uh, public money. Uh, so it's yeah. it's mostly just like everywhere else.
0: I don't know if it's the same term there, but here it would be called zoning, where city government would say, oh, you want to build a recording studio in this location, and it may not be zoned for that type of business. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do you have any challenges like that there?
1: I don't think we have zones like that, but it's definitely, I mean, if if you're going to try and build a studio in a, in a residential area, that's obviously much more challenging than if you're in a, an industrial area, for example. Uh, we are actually in a residential area in central Stockholm, uh, but we have a sort of a unique place where we don't have any neighbors in any direction on in any walls but th- that's very uncommon i guess so if, if you if you want to build something and not bother the people living there i guess you have to sort of spend a lot of money on insulation so that, that's that makes it sort of difficult from the start
0: Hope you're enjoying the interview here with Magnus Lindbergh on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a little sponsor break here with our friends over at Audio-Technica. I want to tell you about a microphone that you may have seen there at Music Mesa if you were just there recently. Maybe you stopped by the uh, Audio-Technica booth and you probably saw the Artist Elite uh, series of microphones and one of them in that series is the AE-2300. That's a cardioid instrument microphone and that features Audio-Technica's proprietary double-dome diaphragm construction giving it high frequency and transient response that far exceeds typical dynamic microphones. Uh, With a rugged low profile design and the ability to handle high SPLs, the AE2300 is a versatile performer and it's able to capture sound from guitar amps, brass, woodwinds, drums, and percussion instruments with equal clarity and precision. Maintains its directionality across the entire frequency range while introducing only the slightest off-axis coloration. You know, when that sound of When you're micing the tom and the cymbal bleeds into it and it gets really kind of wacky sounding on other mics, well, uh, based off this, that doesn't happen uh, to the degree that it would if you got another mic. Um, The frequency response is basically nearly identical at 0, 90 and 180 degrees. So that works in your favor for excellent phase cohesion in multiple mic setups. Uh, the microphone is also equipped with a switchable low-pass filter that cuts out harsh high-frequency noise. That's right, I said low-pass, not high-pass. Low-pass. That's right. Um, so you can, you know, switch that on and cut out uh, things like hiss from a guitar amp or hi-hat bleed into the snare, uh, without negatively affecting the overall tone of, of the instrument you're miking. So that's especially useful. Uh, in live settings, of course, to uh, get a more clear and focused sound. So that's the AE2300 from uh, Audio-Technica. Be sure and check that out. You can go to audio-technica.com and see and read more about it. Yeah. Well, let's get back into it here with Magnus Lindbergh on the Working Class Audio podcast. In terms of audio that you deal with, do you only deal in music or do you do you have clients that do voiceovers or any kind of audio other than
1: music? Mm. I do maybe 99% music or 97 <laughs> but it, it has happened and still happens that I do a few sort of uh, radio production mixing stuff mm-hmm. uh could be anything from speech to mixing music that's intended to be you know in a radio theater or stuff like that so the, the paying client would be like a product radio production company or public swedish radio company or you know stuff like that but it's it's a small part very small part of what i do but i like it though
0: i'm curious if from your perspective how is it that you got to the point you're at where you're fairly busy now what's led up to that what how have you built up such a a a busy schedule
1: oh man uh i guess some luck (laughs) you always need some luck i think Getting involved in a particular music scene is probably probably helps, and being sort of uh, known for maybe a sound or particular type of sound. What is it you're known for? When I sort of started getting busy, I guess it was mostly some sort of um, heavier stuff, but with a more sort of uh, organic touch to it. Post rock, post metal, is common words. Uh, yeah, like. Heavier stuff with a bit more organic feel to it, I think. And then also, yeah, um, doing a good job helps. Being yes. easy to deal with, being honest, being, you know, a, a sort of good person to to talk to helps. Mm-hmm. All this sort of us- usual stuff. And of course, I've been doing it for, I don't know, 12,
0: 13, 14 years. So it, it takes a lot of time to
1: build a good client base. <laughs> <place.
0: laughs> You probably hear me ask this question of other guests. I'm curious about like your level of what I always refer to as gear lust and how does that affect you and your finances at all? <laughs> do, you, do you really focus on always thinking about, oh gosh, I really want to get this piece of gear.
1: Yeah, I feel that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I do have a lot of gear lust uh, as we all do. I try to get only stuff that I really need and can get sort of a lot of use for. And I also tend to sell stuff that I'm sort of not using anymore, uh, which makes it a little bit more sort of, uh, I guess, more um, easy to, you know, motivate financially when you're buying something new. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you need to find the gear that you really like and, and sort of be your sort of ex- third arm in a way. Or And I've sort of gotten quite far there. I think I've, I have sort of what I need, basically. Yeah. You can always get better stuff, you know. But uh, I also get bored quickly with be with the gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I think I could probably satisfy my own gear lust by just trying stuff, mm-hmm. having companies send me stuff and let me hold on to it for a month or two, and then yeah. I'll get bored with it.
1: Yeah, but the 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 things that that stay here, uh, those are the the pieces of gear that I I guess I I, I really need, you know, that I think I don't want to sell you know and so it's sort of getting uh getting to a point where i don't really know what i'm gonna buy next because uh i don't want too much gear either it's gonna take me too long to recall and just too much hassle so
0: yeah i'm curious what you what's your favorite purchase you've made and what's your least favorite purchase favorite it's probably my either my my uh
1: tube eq from giraffe if you know them uh it's quite a well-known mastering kind of company from denmark and my crane song set. i mean that's just awesome if you're mastering especially
0: yeah what uh and then what about what's your least favorite purchase you've made not trying to throw any companies under the bus here but just (laughs) you know well i i bought the uh, dbx
1: uh 160 you know not the not the vintage ones but the one rack unit ones 160a Uh right And uh, I know people like them. I kind of like them too, but I I was expecting them to sort of be more like the 160 VUs. Yeah. But they aren't at all, I think. So I kind of got rid of them quite fast. Uh, But I, otherwise, I sort of tend to do a lot of research when I buy gear. So it's, I'm usually not,
0: you know, super disappointed. Who's influenced you in the work you do today? Like what, who are the people that, like, if I, if you had to name let's say, three other people that are, you know, inspiration to you from whether it's their, their work or their attitude or oh. anything?
1: Hmm. Well, one would be, uh, I'll say them as one person, those would be my my ex-studio colleagues, Pell and Eskil. Mm-hmm. They definitely influenced the way I work. Um, that's where I sort of started my, uh, well, professional career, if you want to. Uh, and then... Um, Jeez, uh, I mean, I, I could say a, a person like Steve Albini would be. Uh, I like I like his attitude, not necessarily yeah. everything he does, but I like his attitude and sort of the way he's uh, it just uh, does his thing, really, sort of one hundred percent. I yeah. admire that.
0: I'm in that camp as well. I, I'm a I'm a, a, an an admirer of of Steve's.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I admire a lot of people. You hear a lot of good stuff. All the time, I think. That sounds good, you know. Um, not sure if I could sort of pinpoint persons like that. It's hard.
0: <laughs> and here's something new I'm I'm trying on the show. I'm asking each guest to come up with another individual that they either know or or have some kind of contact with that you think would be a good guest on the show. Oh. Somebody that has, you know, at least the time and experience that you do. And mm-hmm. That you think would be good to talk to? Let's see. Good question. Uh, have you done Kurt Ballou yet? No, but you're the second person to bring him yeah. up. Scott Evans brought him up long ago. Yeah. That would be a good match, I think. Okay. Personal friend of yours or?
1: Uh, not, not friend, but I, I, I've mastered a couple of things that I mixed, just uh, a couple. Uh,
0: okay. Do you have, so do you have contact information? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay. Where's he based? East Coast, somewhere. Okay. I think. I'll see if I can get in touch with them. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just
1: have an, e- an email address, so I'll send it to you.
0: Okay. I don't want to get too deep into this conver- conversation of gear, but mm-hmm. just kind of curious, like with mixing and mastering, you know, what's, what's the gear you use to do your job? I mean, except for
1: monitoring and all that kind of stuff, I have uh, one, two, three analog stereo compressors here, and two of them I use a lot, um, and then I have two stereo EQs it's all uh, kind of geared towards mastering kind of uh you know all like switch knobs and really sort of uh nothing vintage just new quality quality gear really stuff that's easy to recall yeah exactly <laughs> cuz I, I need i i take i'm taking pictures of my gear for recall so if it's switched it's you know it doesn't have to be that exact in you know how you aim the camera and stuff you can see
0: Yeah. What about monitors? My main sort of
1: listening monitor is the Focal SM9s, which I love. Sponsor of the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're awesome. And you sort of, you don't need to sub with them. I kind of like that, sort of getting everything from the same cabinet. Yeah. Then I have some Jamahaw's HS50. Uh Uh-huh. And I got on the sides, I have uh, two hi-fi tower speakers just blasting at the couch in the back. Lots of subs, lots of, you know, A&R, A&R monitoring, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have a boombox also. So I have four four pairs of speakers here and headphones,
0: of course. And what's, what's the DAW of choice for you?
1: Uh, it's Reaper now, running on a SSL sound card with DSP. Uh, it's kind of like the RME cards, but SSL, sort of. Yeah, interesting. Super stable, super... You know, easy. I don't know if you know about Inexpensive. Oh, in, uh, yeah. Uh, Reaper is really inexpensive, but really, really awesome. You can sort of customize it the way you want and just make it your tool, sort of.
0: Hmm. Um,
1: yeah, it's great. Really efficient CPU-wise. Are you running on a Mac or a PC? I have a, a PC that I built myself, um, custom build. I've been doing that for a long time. So I buy components that I like. It's the most price efficient way to get com- uh, computer horsepower, I think.
0: Well, I guess if you're paying import taxes on Macintosh or or Apple computers.
1: Yeah. And, and I think even if I weren't paying some import taxes, uh, it would still be a lot, lot more expensive than building your own PC, you know?
0: Yeah. I t- I'm an Apple computer fan, but I tend to buy used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just yeah, buying new is really just it's just super expensive. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm sort of, I guess, a bit computer savvy as well, so I'm I don't have any problems with like setting up my own system and you know tweaking it and sort of optimizing it in a way. So I think it's fun, also. But a computer, a good computer yeah. these days lasts. Maybe four years at least, so you don't have to do it often.
0: Yeah, and at least with, you know, building your own machine, you can swap out the motherboard and yeah. not have to ditch the whole machine. Yeah. Buy some more RAM or... I like that. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been cool, man. I'm I'm glad to finally get a guest that's not in the United States.
1: Yeah, I thought it might be so... sort of uh, interesting for you guys to get a, an outside perspective.
0: No shit, huh? <laughs> it was fun to be here. You didn't have to go very far. No, exactly. <laughs> cool, man. Cool. Thank you for talking. Take care, man. Okay, man. Take care. See Bye. ya. <laughs> there it is. Magnus Lindbergh on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for listening today. We are out of time, so I do want to thank everybody involved. I want to thank our guest, Magnus Lindbergh. I want to thank Cliff Truesdale for our music. Chuck Smith for our voiceover intro. And Cole Williams for all of his help in social media and editing. And of course, I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Focal Monitors, and Universal Audio. And of course, I want to thank you. I appreciate you listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, working class audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.